Well, you may not have calculated this, but it's interesting that the average person will spend over 90,000 hours over the course of their lifetime at work. Their job, running a business, doing some kind of productivity uh, in order to earn a living. That's one-third of your waking hours devoted to work. That's a lot of time, isn't it? That is a lot of time when we consider really the short span of our life in the the context and the great timeline of human history that has gone before us and that stream, that timeline that will come before ahead of us until the return of our Lord. So it's not surprising when we turn to God's Word, we see that God's Word has a whole lot to say about work, a a whole lot to say about how we are to do our work. We've already seen a little bit of that in Proverbs. In fact, back in Proverbs chapter 6, we find Solomon contrasting the the industriousness of an ant, right, with a sluggard. The sluggard being a lazy person, a foolish person. The ant is diligent. The ant works hard. The ant gathers in the summer to store up for the winter. The sluggard, on the other hand, loves sleep. The lazy person loves their leisure time. And inevitably, the sluggard's lack of diligence leads to their impoverishment. Their diligence, their lack of diligence will catch up to them, right? And eventually, they're destroyed. They're brought to ruin. So hard work and industry and diligence are praiseworthy qualities that we're going to see all throughout Proverbs, indeed all throughout God's Word. However, laziness and slothfulness have come to be seen in Proverbs as the epitome of folly and foolishness. Now, Paul, when he writes to the church here at Thessalonica, and we're going to read this here, is going to admonish a certain type of people in the church. These are ones he calls that are walking in idleness. That means they're walking in some kind of slothfulness. They're, they're sluggards. They're, they're not working hard. They're, they're a group of people, maybe one, maybe it's more than one, who are just not pulling their weight. And sadly, they're becoming a burden on the church. So let's turn there. Let's, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 6 through 15. Hear the words of the living God. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Let, uh, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's harsh words, aren't they? That's a strong exhortation, strong admonishment to these folks in the church who were walking in idleness. And, it, and, and unfortunately, that idleness would eventually exclude them from the benevolence of the church. It would exclude, exclude them from participating in, in a fellowship meal, right? That's so if they don't work, they don't get to eat. They don't get to enjoy the blessings of the fellowship and the benefits of the fellowship here. Um, so... That's not us, right? We don't want to be these individuals. We don't want this kind of rebuke. We don't want to be labeled this way. We certainly don't want to walk in this way, first of all, because it's not pleasing to the Lord, and it is damaging to the local church, to the body of believers here. Now, we're going to tackle a theme in Proverbs, and it's going to take us this Sunday and next to walk through the topic and theme of diligence and that of 
laziness, okay? And it's a topic and a theme of great importance. Might find some here struggling with being diligent. Might be here and you're saying, you know, I see some characteristics of laziness in myself. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as lazy because ultimately we look at other people as the standard of laziness with which to measure ourselves against, right? And maybe in comparison to them, we're not lazy. Or actually might see ourselves as hardworking. But maybe as we go through this, you will feel the convicting work of the Spirit in your heart and in your life. And if, if, if that's you, uh, my encouragement to you, my hope and my prayer through this is that, that there would be repentance. That you would turn and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow in Christ's example of diligence. All right. Now... What I want you to see through this is how diligence rewards you, not just in this life, but also in the life to come. And that's important. As we talked about Proverbs, the promises in Proverbs, they're generally true now, but they're all ultimately true later, okay? When Christ returns, and and ultimately, He is the fulfillment of all of these things that we are promised. We get them in Him, Okay? And, and I don't want you to miss the point as we talk about diligence and hard work and being industrious. The point isn't for you to be busier. Because we, we might be tempted when we hear this to think, oh, how overwhelming this is. I got to do more. I got to I got to get. Well, some of you might need to be. But generally, that's not the case. The goal here isn't to be busier. The, the goal of diligence and hard work isn't to, to have a frantic and frenetic and chaotic unbalanced life. The diligent life that Proverbs unpacks for us and God's Word unpacks for us is a peaceful, rewarding, and satisfying life. A life, when we think about this in the context of wisdom, is one in which we know what we're doing and what we're supposed to be doing, and that's what we're doing, all right, Uh, as we walk in this path of wisdom. Now, before we dive into Proverbs, I'm going to do a little brief theology of work to get an understanding of work. Most people see work as a means to an end. They see their work as a means to a paycheck, and that paycheck transfers into me being able to buy the things that I need or to pay for things that I need. My rent, my utilities, my groceries, putting gas in my car. Maybe it's paying for my kid's school. But it's also a means to an end of maybe things we want, right? Maybe a vacation, more electronics, more stuff, the latest gadgets, nail products, beauty supplies, and the likes, right? Getting a job is, is about me getting what I need and what I want. But is that all that work is supposed to be? Is it just to be a means to an end? And, 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 and is that why we just put up with work? Because we have to do it, it's a necessary evil, and at the end of it, I, I, I get what I need and what I want. Now, to understand work and, and to get a proper theology of work and to understand it, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the garden paradise of God. We need to go back to God's first instructions to man and woman when he created them. All right, so turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. All right. There's three things I want you to understand about work, all right? And you'll see them in the sermon notes as well. And the first is this, is that work is good. Work may be a four-letter word, but it's not supposed to be that kind of four-letter word, right? Work is good. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read 7 and 8 and verse 15. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, listen, to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Now, in the timeline of history here, is this event spoken about in Genesis here before the fall or after the fall? Or the fall. Isn't that interesting and of note, right? This happens prior to the fall. God forms the man, he takes him, and he puts him in this garden paradise, Eden, the garden temple of God, and he gives him an assignment. He gives him 
work. And that work was to cultivate it and tend to the garden, keep and protect it. It's actually language of, of ministry. It's just like what the priest did in the temple. That word cultivate, right? The root of that word is also the root of where we get the word worship. Cultivating cultus actually has to do with worship, right? So this work, this cultivating, this tending, this keeping was an act of worship Adam did, right? That was assigned to him by God. So work is good. Work is not a product of the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. It's not a result of man's rebellion and sin. It is part of God's original good design for humanity. We were created for work. I say we were created for worship. We were created to know God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy forever. Absolutely. But we were also created for work. In all of that, in glorifying God and worshiping God, is the work that God gave us to do. And Adam was given work here, but there was a greater purpose to that work, a greater trajectory to that work beyond the garden here. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, just read that on your own time, but it reveals there that God gave man dominion that was to radiate outward from the garden, extend outward from the garden to all of the earth. We call that the creation mandate, where he instructed man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This was a plan for dominion over all of God's creation. So Adam and Eve, what were they to do? They were to have godly offspring. They were to teach their godly offspring to do the same thing that they were doing. Working, keeping the garden, tending to it, cultivating it, and then subdue all of creation. So all of the earth inevitably was to be a mirror of the garden paradise. The whole earth brought under submission and and cultivated and brought under Adam and Eve's dominion was then to be a reflection of the garden paradise of God and all the earth was to be God's temple. So the first thing you've got to remember is that work is good. Say it with me. Work is good. Work is good. good. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you hate getting up to go to it, rewire your thinking to understand that work is good. It's good. It's God's design for humanity. But the second reality comes to play here is that work is also hard. It's good, but work is hard. See, the fall negatively impacted work on many different levels. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, 17 and 19. Here we see the Lord cursing the ground as a result of Adam's sin and rebellion. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, man, that doesn't mean don't listen to your wife. But don't listen to her if she's telling you to do something sinful, all right? And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Listen, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now, Adam wasn't cursed. The ground was cursed. The work that Adam had to do in in working the ground and keeping it and tending to it and cultivating it, now that ground is cursed, all right? So his work now becomes something much more difficult than it ever was. The ground wasn't going to give up its goods as easily as it had done before that. Now it would involve sweat. Now it would involve hard labor, uh, toil, thorns, and thistles. Think about that. Before, he's doing his thing and fruit and vegetables and all sorts of stuff are coming off the ground. Good stuff to eat. Now, thorns, weeds. How many have weeds in your garden? Don't you love those things? Man, no matter what you do, they keep coming back, right? And it's hard work to, to now cultivate and grow and, and see it bring forth the good fruit and life that it's supposed to. Man is going to have to work hard for the ground to produce. They sinned by eating what they should not have, and now they would suffer in order to get to eat what they must have. That's the curse on the ground. 
And the only alleviation from that hard work, from the toil and the sweat of this labor, is death. You say, when am I going to relax from work? <laughs> when you return to the ground, right? Uh, that's when, right? It's uh, no other way, right? That's, the re- that's when we'll get relief. So have you ever thought about why is work so hard? Why is it so difficult? Why am I exhausted all the time? Why is it that I, I, I endeavor to do things and whatever I set my hands to do sometimes just doesn't produce, it doesn't work, it fails time and time again, and it's so hard, that's why. The earth is cursed, the ground is cursed. Our work, our toil, our labor now is going to be difficult and hard as a result of our fall. But then here's the hope and the beauty of all of this. That's not forever, all right? Our work is also redeemed. Our work is redeemed. See, the work of Jesus Christ, when we talk about his redemptive work, we always want to just kind of put it in individual terms, right? His redemption was for my individual salvation. But that's not all that Christ's redemption accomplished. God means to restore all of the cosmos, The entirety of creation will be recreated, renewed, remade. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, okay? That's what Christ's redemption has accomplished. But when we think about Christ redeeming us, what does that mean for us in relation to our work? It's not just our eternal destiny uh, that is changed and transformed. It's not just that we're going to go to heaven. It's not just that we will experience eternal life. As amazing as that is, that is not the only impact and effect of redemption. No, our entire way of thinking and living now is also transformed. Redemption affects every single part of us. That means it also affects our work. It transforms how we are to view our work, and do our work. So work isn't, for us, a necessary evil. It's not a means to an end to get the stuff that we want or need. Work for the believer takes on a whole new significance. Takes on a spiritual significance and dynamic. See, through our work, you and I have an opportunity to glorify God. To bring glory to God. We know the scripture tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10:31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that includes your work, right? That is a whatever you do. How do we to do that? Do all to the glory of God. So when you show up for your job tomorrow, you are there for the glory of God. When you wake up tomorrow to to begin the tasks of the day, it's for the glory of God. That's the kind of significance our work now takes on this side of redemption. We want God to be honored in what we do and how we do it. Because we're to do it unto the Lord. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. That's our work. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we don't see our work as most unbelievers see their work. Something that they hate a drudgery, a necessary evil, right? We're to see it with something infused with far greater purpose and glory, regardless of your vocation, regardless of your vocation, your profession, whether you're a homemaker, whether you work in retail, whether you work in, in, in some other establishment or business, whether you work in a, in a restaurant, whether you paint, whether you're a plumber, whether you're an accountant, whether you're an administrative assistant, it does not matter. All of our work is to be done to the glory of God, giving thanks to Him. So our desire as Christ followers is to work diligently because we're doing it to the glory of God. Scripture doesn't make the type of sacred secular distinctions and categorizations that sometimes we like to make. We look at certain activities of our life and we say these are spiritual activities. Prayer and going to church and maybe generosity and Bible reading. But most people would classify their work as something secular. Something outside of the spiritual realm. And that would not be a proper way to view these things. Because of our relationship with Christ, the way we do our work is as spiritual of an endeavor as is reading your Bible. As is prayer as is attending the Sunday gathering and fellowshipping with the saints. 
It is all spiritual. It is all sacred. It is all worship and should bring glory to our God. So how you view work and how you do your work says a lot about what you believe about God's word, about the gospel, and about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So I want you to think as we go through this, do you work to honor the Lord? Is how you do your work something that brings glory to the Father? And do you do your work with thanksgiving? Or is it that long face come Monday morning and you're like, again, here we go. Live for the weekend. Our life isn't supposed to be lived that way. All right, so now we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Now with that framework, that theology of work in mind, that it is good, but it's also hard because of the fall and its brokenness, but God is also redeeming that in Christ. For us now, we're going to shift gears and look at these two themes now that emerge in Proverbs. Now, this is a little shift in how we've been studying Proverbs, this first nine chapters. Now, we're looking at some larger themes. It is impossible to go verse by verse through Proverbs, we will be here till the Lord returns, and, and maybe you'd like that. I don't know, but we're not taking a poll on that, all right? So this is not a democracy, all right? So we, we're looking at larger themes in Proverbs, and so I'm going to function more like a tour guide. You ever go on a tour, like maybe on a bus, and it's going through a city? What does the tour guide do? There's that, and there's this building, and, and here's what happened over here. And that's kind of the best I can do in some of this is, is point to different Proverbs and show you what the sages, what Solomon and the other sages were intending to give us in terms of a picture, like a, a, a piece of the, of, of the puzzle here in regards to these themes of diligence and work ethic and laziness. That's what we did last week when we began to look at generosity and a little bit about wealth, right? So we're going we're gonna to kind of lump some of those themes together to, so you can see that, all right? We know that as we've been studying Proverbs, the book is, is super important because it's, it's Solomon teaching his young son about the two paths in life, the two ways one can live in life. One can live on the path of wisdom or on the path of folly. One can live on the path of the fear of the Lord, which is wisdom, and the other one is living by human wisdom and human knowledge and, and by impulse and, and lustful desires, and that is the path of wickedness. And, and folly here, right? And depending on which path a person chooses to live by will determine how they approach their work. We're going to survey a few Proverbs here and look at these themes of diligence and laziness and, and these two portraits that are given to us concerning work ethic in Proverbs, the diligent and the sluggard. Two portraits. Today we'll look at the diligent. Next week we will look at the sluggard. And uh, be thankful I broke it up into two because uh, as of very recently, I was going to do this in one and uh, we were going to be here a while, all right? So, uh, so let's begin by defining what does it mean to be diligent? What is the definition of diligence? We read a couple of weeks ago Proverbs 10.1, right? This was the shift to the individual Proverbs and it opens like this, Solomon saying, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother, a wise son, a foolish son. Again, there, one has chosen the path of wisdom. The foolish son has chosen the path of folly here. And then he goes on to give an application of what that looks like in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 10. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So the wise son here is the one who is diligent, whose hand is diligent. And his hand, because it's productive, makes him rich. Because he's productive and prudent, right, at harvest time, he's working hard so that there are provisions and there are riches. Now, diligent in Proverbs generally means to be industrious. It refers to a person who is characterized by care and perseverance in carrying out tasks. Now, these are hard workers. When they approach the task, they do it carefully. And they see it through to completion. The, the root of the word diligent has to, to do with a, a, making a cut, like a sharp cut, right? It's a decisive action. The diligent person 
is decisive. The diligent person is intentional in the way they approach their work. And, and this word diligent is also applied to us in how we are to seek wisdom. We're to seek in Proverbs chapter 8, it tells us we're to seek after wisdom with all diligence. Right? That kind of industriousness, that hard work, that perseverance. All right? So that's what it means to be diligent. First thing I want you to see as we look through some of the Proverbs is that the diligent person works hard. This is a theme that recurs over and over again in Proverbs. Now, if you recall, this is an ancient uh, culture. Uh, it was an agrarian economy. And, and in an agrarian economy, that connection between hard work and the outcome of the hard work would be easy to see, right? A person who works the ground hard and is diligent in planting, in watering, in, 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 in cultivating, in all of those things, come harvest time, there's going to be something to show for their labor and their work. And they're going to be able to reap the benefit and the fruit of that, right? In contrast, right, a lazy person, the one who's not diligent, we're going to be able to notice that as well. We're going to see a proverb here in just a moment uh, of Solomon when he observes the field of the sluggard here, okay? So hardworking farmers and ranchers will always outproduce lazy ones. Generally, in your work, you do the same. You know, my wife, Betsa, she has a job where... It's production-oriented, and it's easy to see who the hard-working ones are and who the lazy ones are, because the numbers show it, right? When it's three to one or four to one, it's quite obvious to see, okay, there's the stack of this person, and there's the stack of that person. Uh, We can usually tell who's a little bit more productive there. Now, Proverbs 31 gives a picture of the woman who fears the Lord, the virtuous woman, right? That Proverbs 31 woman, the one we all want our sons to marry and go after, right? The one women hate to talk about, right? No, but she gives us a picture here of the woman who fears the Lord. I want you to see as we just kind of skim through this real quick, and we're going to study that later on down here in Proverbs, but look at how her industriousness is described. As she works tirelessly in the pursuit of the household's goals. Look at this in Proverbs 31, 13. tells us that she works with willing hands. Willing hands. No one's telling her what to do. She knows what she needs to do, right? Wisdom tells us to do the right thing at the right time. She knows what that is to be. Verse 15, 31, 15. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. This is not a lazy woman, is it? No, she's up, she's up in the wee hours of the morning getting things ready for her household, preparing the meals. Uh, 3116, with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Well, that's not an easy task at all, all right? But there she is working with her hands. Proverbs 31, 18 and 24, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable, so what does she do? Her lamp does not go out at night. She's burning the midnight oil to manufacture, make, and produce with the purpose of selling. She makes linen garments and sells them. Proverbs thirty-one twenty-seven. she does not eat the bread of idleness. Pretty impressive, right? All of that adds up to a lot of hard work. But notice this is set forth as something very positive. This is an admirable quality hard work, diligence, industry, okay? It's not a negative. It is not perceived as something impossible. It's just saying, hey, generally, this is what that looks like. And Proverbs 31 is set for us in Scripture, remembering what wisdom is. It's a personification of, of a woman, all right? And Proverbs 31 is describing these general characteristics that are admirable of the woman who fears the Lord. And hard work and and not being idle is one of those things. We were meant to work hard and to go to bed tired. That's what we were meant for. And some of you do. Not all of you. Some of you. Not all of us. Some of us. And I'm not saying who that is. We just know, in general, right, the statistics would bear that out. We were meant to work hard and go to bed tired. Okay? Because, again, work is not bad. Work is good. But work is now hard because of the fall. So ask yourself, do you work hard? The qualities of the diligent person, as as we go through them, would, would that describe 
you. And I'm going to submit to you that some people who are actually act like they're really busy are not really working hard. That's a whole different story, and I'll save that for next week, all right? Think about your job. Think about your profession, whatever your chosen vocation is. Do you work hard at it, or do you coast through it? Do you put in the maximum effort to the tasks that are before you, or do you like to take shortcuts, take the easy way around things, or work hard to avoid working hard? Number three here, let's look at this. The diligent person thinks and plans for the long term. Uh, Here is a, a, a great Proverbs and an observation. Proverbs 27, 23 through 27. Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and maintenance of, uh, for your girls." Now, all right, so none of us work the fields like that. None of us have herds and cattle and are milking goats and, and doing these other things, shearing the lambs for clothing, right? So, so what's in view here? Notice what he says here. Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention. Why? For riches do not last forever. There's something Solomon wants to drive home here. The sages want to drive home through this uh, that that there has to be a long-term view here in mind so that there will be a continuation of the blessings, especially when times get a little harder and times get difficult. The rancher must think long-term about their herds. Herds need to be moved and flocks need to be moved to greener pastures. He needs to gather the grass and store it up, right, for the leaner times or for the winter so there is food for his flocks and his herds, right? All of that is uh, to give care to the flocks to sustain them over time. The wise person makes appropriate efforts to ensure the continuation of blessings. And that takes thinking ahead. That takes planning ahead. Now, I'm not a rancher, but I can imagine the kind of work that would be involved, right? It's not just going out every morning and feeding your cattle. No, there's a lot that goes into that process and caring for them. And you've got to think, what, what is the end goal of everything you're doing and reverse engineering that, right? So that there's a continuation, a propagation of, of new cattle, right? New heads of cattle and new growth maybe in your fields and onward. And it's the same thing with us in life. The diligent person just doesn't live in the moment, The diligent person just doesn't consume what they have in their hand at this moment and live, you know, with nothing else in mind. They don't eat all of their seed, right? They're sowing it to propagate the blessing uh, going forward here. Plan ahead, years ahead. We've already seen how wisdom teaches us to make decisions based on the long-term consequences. And you and I need to work with that in mind. And sometimes we just get this little tunnel vision thing and just doing what's before us, and we're not thinking, okay, wow, God's blessing me in, in the moment in this, but how's that going to continue? How's that going to be a blessing to others? How's that going to be a blessing to my children and my children's children? Proverbs twenty four twenty seven says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. The field comes before the house. Most of us would do it the other way, the house before working the fields for the fields to produce. But wisdom says, no, 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 work the fields first, make sure the fields now produce and generate the necessary income so that when you go to build, you have absolutely everything you need to see that construction project through to the end. That's the kind of thinking the wise, diligent worker has in view here. I think there's some long-term financial planning uh, that Solomon is, is talking about here, the sages are talking about here. We're to think with an investment mindset, a harvest mindset, right? And that's, that's a, a, a delaying of, of gratification, right? We live in a culture of instant gratification. We want everything now. So we put things on credit cards because we can't wait 
We don't have the money to pay for it now, so we get into debt, we get in over our head, and that creates a whole snowball effect of problems. The diligent worker is thinking ahead. Let me not consume everything I have right now. Let me not start something I'm unable to finish. No, let me, let me, let me plan this strategically. Let me work this out strategically here. Isn't that what Jesus taught as well in Luke 14, 28 through 30? For which of you desiring to build a tower? Now, this is in the context of counting the cost of, of being his follower, being his disciple. Right? You've got to know the long-term outcome of this, the long-term consequences. There's a price to pay for following Jesus. But look at the example he gives. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The diligent count the cost. The diligent plan with the long term in mind. One of the qualities we're going to see next week, the characteristics of the sluggard, is that they start a whole lot of things that they can't finish. They don't count the cost. They don't live with this long term view in mind. The diligent, however, know they must do the right thing in the right season in order to prosper. Just like the ant who gathers in the summer to be prepared for the winter, the diligent does the same thing. They gather information, they assess situations, they formulate a plan, all the while thinking about the future impact of their decisions and the labor that they engage in. Think about how many businesses start up every single day in this country. Hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds, and most of them fail. Why do they fail? And count the cost. There was no business plan. There was no strategy. There was no long-term thinking. It was just like, wow, this is a great way to make a quick buck. And it's not sustainable, right? They get in over their heads and they lose, they lose it all. Now, here's something I want you to think about, that we are like God when we plan for the long-term. God is a long-term planner. This whole thing that we're living out right now, from the foundation of the world, the foundation of the cosmos, to the consummation of all things, has been planned out by God from eternity past. The plan of redemption was planned when? Before the foundation of the world. The triune Godhead strategized our redemption before anything was and determined its outcome. How amazing is that, right? But unlike God, we don't have the ability to see our plans come through with 100% success rate, do we? We plan a lot of things, but they don't all pan out, do they? I don't even know if I have a 10% success ratio, right? We do a lot of plans, but we don't have control of the outcome the way God does, right? So we approach our planning with wisdom, and we also approach our planning with humility, Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. There's no place for boasting in this. Oh, it's going to happen. Like those great, you know, network marketing folks. Oh, it's a thousand percent return is guaranteed. No, it's not. You know, stock portfolio. No, it's not guaranteed. doesn't matter what your financial investor says. No one can guarantee what tomorrow brings. No one can guarantee that tomorrow the bottom won't fall out of everything. Now, we feel like it may be happening, but it doesn't mean it's going to. But it might. We just have no way of controlling that. We don't know. There are factors outside of our planning, outside of our control. James says a similar thing here in four, chapter 4, uh, 13 through 17, where he writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such, a, uh, such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Our planning should not be presumptuous. There's no room for arrogance or boasting because we don't know the future. No one here does. No one on the face of this planet knows what tomorrow will bring. So we, 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 we plan, 
But we plan recognizing that the outcome may be totally different because tomorrow will bring its own thing, right? We trust that God has sovereignly ordained all things, so we plan and trust that our desires align with His will, right? Our desire is to please God, or it should be. Our desire is to to make plans and do things to the glory of God, for the honor of God, for the advance of the gospel, to bless our family, to bless other people, but we don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's in God's hands. So we trust Him, right? Proverbs 19, 21 reminds us that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord, that will stand, right? That will stand. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, that's not 100% unconditional guarantee, but that's the motivation of our heart. We commit our plans to the Lord. We don't plan boasting that we know the outcome. We plan trusting God. Trusting that our desires align with his will and his desires and our plans then are established. Right? And have long-term thinking. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see your, your family in five years financially and, and maybe the spiritual inheritance that you're passing on to your children? We have to live with that kind of mentality. Right? An investment mentality in the way we go about life. The diligent person, the diligent worker does that. Okay? Number four, the diligent person is rewarded. Now, this topic of rewards we will see over and over again in Proverbs. Hard work pays off, generally speaking. Right? It doesn't always feel like it does. How many of you have worked really hard and it hasn't paid off? Right? I've, I've experienced that in my life a number of times. Now, in farming again, because thinking about the context this was written to, hard work would yield the fruit of success. Because if you didn't work hard, well, even for one week during harvest time, winter would be exceedingly difficult and devastating, all right? Uh, But in our day, that's a little bit harder to see. You think about in our modern economy, when things are going well, when the economy is strong, people are working, right? Even lazy people have jobs, even lazy people are, are making money, right? There's work for everyone to go around, and generally they seem to do as well as the hardworking person. In some environments, the lazy person gets the same thing the diligent person gets. It's unfair, it's not, equi- it's not equitable, but it happens all the time, right? You've experienced that. When the economy is not strong, sometimes a hardworking person might have the same challenges, the same difficulty in finding a job as a lazy person. That's a reality of, the, of this fallen world, this cursed earth, right? And sadly, in this cursed and fallen world, a hardworking individual may not see the rewards of their hard work because they might face discrimination. Maybe their boss shows favoritism to a, a loser, you know, just someone they're buddies with and is really lazy. And here you are working hard, but you're not getting rewarded for that. Maybe you lack seniority, right? Maybe, you know, uh, there's bad performance metrics in your organization and you don't get rewarded for the kind of hard work that you're doing. There's a whole host of factors that that might not be the case. However, the general promises that Proverbs make about the rewards for the diligent uh, are still relevant and generally true today. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. That has material implications. That has spiritual implications as well, right? For the diligent soul, the one who is industrious and works with care and perseverance and sees things through to the end, they will be richly supplied. Proverbs fourteen twenty three: In all toil, there is profit. That's generally true, isn't it? But mere talk only to poverty, right? You can talk a whole lot, but that doesn't earn you anything. Unless your job is to be a professional talker. Is that my job? I'm not sure. No. But in all toil, generally, there is profit. Right? You work, you labor, you toil, and there is recompense on the other side of that. But if you only just talk about working and don't actually do it, you're going to be impoverished. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Again, that's, that's again, the steady, diligent, progressive work of, uh, of the hardworking individual, the wise person, will lead to prosperity and abundance. And others who go after 
get-rich-quick type schemes eventually lead, they end up in poverty. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Right? This is, it's talking about a person of skill, ability, and talent. The diligent, wise person is going to get noticed. It's generally going to get noticed by those in there that they're working for. Maybe by their manager, maybe by a regional manager, uh, or, or, or maybe by the president or CEO of their company. And many of you probably have experienced that in life. You've been diligent, you've worked hard, and you've been recognized for that and sometimes have been promoted. So the point in all of these Proverbs is that over the course of a working life, the wise, diligent worker will tend to get pay increases will be recognized, awarded, promoted, will be given more responsibilities, maybe other opportunities uh, will open up to them, more so than they would the sluggard, a lazy person, one who isn't diligent in what they do. Back in my corporate life and corporate world, I experienced that a few times. Hard work was recognized, you know, uh, innovating and, and helping improve processes and systems and all these things were rewarded. I got bonuses. I got recognized. I got awards for those things. Many of you have experienced those kind of things. When you think about the parable uh, of the talents in Matthew 25, it lends to us understanding how people who add value to their employer, to the organization that they work for, they're generally prized and rewarded. And that parable, the talents in Matthew 25, reveals how the faithful servant, right, who was entrusted with certain resources by his master, what did he do with those? He multiplied those resources. He added value to the bottom line of the master and was recognized and was told, because you've been faithful with little, you'll be placed over much and given much more to rule, right? There was a promotion in view in mind, because why? Value was added. This was a diligent and wise worker. That's why if we work for someone else, brothers and sisters, and and just about everyone in this room, there's a few business owners here or those who are self-employed, maybe you have your own trade, but generally most of us are going to work for other people in life. We're going to be employees and we're going to have employers. We're going to have managers, supervisors, bosses, directors, vice presidents, people over us. You and I should seek to add value wherever it is the Lord has us. You are wherever you are right now because the Lord has you there. And you're to work there to the glory of God. So you should make sure that you get to work early. You ask Arielle, I tell her this all the time. Early is on time. On time is late. The diligent worker is early, right? That's on time, right? The diligent worker, right, adds value. They strive to get along with others, to respect those in authority over them, to bring ideas to improve or innovate. They don't waste time at their work. Their hours that they're spent there are productive hours, They're not stealing from their employer by scrolling through social media or playing games on their smartphone or watching YouTube videos. No, no. The diligent worker strives to be the best worker. Why? Because they're there to honor the Lord. They're there to please their God, to please the Lord. And that should be the cheap motivation for being diligent at work. It isn't to please your boss. And it's not for personal prosperity or gain, though those things happen. It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. And that's why we need to have this robust understanding of our work and the work ethic of the diligent person and how that is not only just honoring to the Lord, but how the Lord honors the diligent as well. We work to the glory of God when we put our whole selves into our work. Colossians 3, 20, uh, 22 through 24, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How are we to work? Knowing that our heavenly father sees us the whole time. Sometimes you have, you know, your boss doesn't see what you do throughout the day, right? Maybe they're in another area uh, of the building. Maybe you work remotely. Many of you sometimes work from home as well, right? Your boss can't see what you're doing. 
But guess who does see what you're doing? The Lord. So we work to the Lord. We're, you know, we're not the kind of employee that just does work when we see our boss coming around the corner. I've worked with a lot of those people in my life. You know, it's like they're lazy. Their feet kicked up on the desk, you know, until their manager, you know, they hear their manager's voice. And then it's, you know, put the headset on and start typing furiously, you know, or something like that, right? And we don't do it to please people. We're doing this to please the Lord because we fear the Lord, right? We work heartily. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. It's actually a strong imperative that is stated there. It's actually serve the Lord Christ or you serve the Lord Christ. He's reminding you who you serve is God, not ultimately, ultimately and not your manager, right? We work to the glory of God by avoiding the grumbling and complaining that normally characterizes a work environment with unbelievers. We read in Philippians chapter 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, we should be shining as lights in the world. We don't shine so much when we join in, right, with all of the complaining and all the grumbling and all of the gossip and all of the junk that happens amongst people in our workplace, right? Used to be people gathered around the office cooler, you know, back in the day, getting their little water. And that was the place where everyone just started complaining about things they didn't like and how they hate their manager and how they hate this task that they were given to do. That should not be us. And there are going to be things that we're going to be asked to do that are unpleasant, right? There's going to be tasks that we're given. They're like, this is so beneath me. I'm smarter than this. I have more to offer this company, right? I have, I have a greater skills and talents. But I'm not there to please man. I'm there to please my Lord, right? So I do what's done. And I do it without grumbling or complaining, right? Uh, that pleases the Lord. Watch your tongue. We're going to have a lot to say about the mouth coming soon. That one's going to be a painful one to walk through, right? But this, this goes hand in hand with that, our speech and how we interact with unbelievers, right? It says a lot about how we believe, who, we're work, who we believe we're working for. We work to the glory of God when we treat our coworkers with kindness and respect, even the ones who don't deserve it. I just added that there. Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's what we're to do. There are some people who are very difficult to live at peace with, aren't there? There are some people we work with who try our patience, who, you know, call our salvation into question, right? Our sanctification, because we just want to strangle them, hurt them really bad, you know? But what we're to do is, as, as far as it depends on you, not as far as it depends on that person, as far as it depends on you. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be, look at that, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Yeah, that's going to be hard with some of the people that we work with in life, right? Some of the people we interact with. Maybe it's your manager, your boss, right? But this is the person who's working to the glory of God understands this. And they don't respond in kind. If they're being yelled at, they don't, they're not there yelling back. You know, they're not joining in the garbage that's taking place there. They treat everyone with dignity and kindness and respect, even when that's not reciprocated. And eventually, we know what the scripture says, when we, 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 we treat our enemies a certain way, when we love our enemies the way we're instructed to, we heap burning coals upon their head, as Jesus said, right? This is, this is what we keep in mind to work to the glory of God. We also work to the glory of God when we rest from our work. Because our rest from our work is an acknowledgement of our dependence on God for everything, for our daily provisions, for everything that we need. We also know it's a command, isn't it? It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's kind of one of those commandments that we just don't think about anymore. It's like, does that really even apply for today? It does. It does. We are to rest one day in seven, Deuteronomy chapter 5. It does not honor the Lord. It does not bring glory to the Lord to burn yourself out in your work or through your work. 
you burn yourself out through your work, right? You're a workaholic. It reveals a heart that lacks trust and dependence on the Lord. A heart that does not believe the gospel concerning Christ, who is our Sabbath rest. Right? We have to be, we have to be careful. There is, there is a perspective here where we understand how we're to work and we're to work hard and to be diligent. But that doesn't mean we work 24-7 and spend ourselves and get ourselves sick. And we are worthless to the Lord and we're worthless to our family and we're worthless to, to everyone else. No, we're to rest. I'll have more to say about rest at another point here. But we bring glory to God when, when we rest, okay? Uh, that's not generally the problem most people have. Most people have the problem is too much rest, all right? We're going to talk about that next week. All right. Work is not our reason for living, right? So it's not to be made into an idol, and that's what the workaholic does. They're, everything becomes about their work. The work is the center of their heart. The, their work is what they are laying up treasures in, right? It's, it's, it's the treasure of their heart directs the course of their life, but that's not what Proverbs is advocating for here. It's not advocating for a workaholic lifestyle. We do not worship our work. Rather, our work is to be done as worship unto the Lord, and that's the proper perspective for us there. But I want you to see also that diligence extends to every area of life. We're talking about diligence in regards to our work, into into our work ethic, but we're to be diligent everywhere in our life. Diligence is to be the hallmark of all that we do. We're to be diligent in seeking the Lord. We're to be diligent in prayer. We're to be diligent in, in, the, in, in studying God's word. We're to be diligent in our relationships with one another. We're to be diligent in, in our generosity. We're to be diligent in, in, in our relationship with our spouse. We're to be diligent in raising up our kids in the fear of the Lord. Right? Diligence covers the whole of our life. It's to mark all of our life. And that same diligence that, that has a payoff in work has a payoff in other aspects of our life as well. If you are diligent in, in, in putting the effort, the industry, uh, industriousness uh, in, in your marriage and working on your marriage and loving your spouse and caring for your spouse, it's going to have a payoff, isn't it? Yes? Yeah. If you're diligent in instructing your kids and teaching your kids and teaching them God's word and teaching them to fear the Lord and teaching them about the path of wisdom and how to avoid the path of folly, that is going to have a payoff. That has its reward as well. If you're diligent in serving God's people and loving God's people and doing the one another's that the scripture enjoins us to do in a fellowship of brothers and sisters here, it will have a payoff here. We'll be strengthened. We will grow spiritually. We grow in Christ-likeness. We need to be diligent in every aspect of our life. If you're diligent in your finances, if you're diligent in, 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 in not spending more than you take in, Right? Putting money away for the future and planning long term and being generous with, with what God has laid in your hand. Guess what? It's going to have a reward. It's going to have a payoff. Diligence has its reward in all areas of life. We saw that back in Second Thessalonians. This is why Paul says, here's how this was our example before you. We weren't idle. We worked hard. Now, we could have made demands, right? Here, I'm an apostle of the Lord. Take care of me. That's your job. It, he could have exacted that. He didn't, though. He said, I'm a setting for you an example that you need to follow. And it's the same example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the supreme model and example, example of what a diligent life looks like. A diligent worker in every aspect of it. From a, from a young boy and how he... He was diligent as a son, as a wise and faithful son. And then what we see in him in his ministry. Being diligent to obey the Father. Being diligent to do all that was given to him to do. To finish the work that was given to him by his heavenly Father. The work that took him to the cross. Where he diligently laid down his life for us. Diligently fulfilling this plan of redemption. That was laid out from before the foundation of the world. No laziness in Jesus. There was no slack hand. So he prayed 
to his father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And it's his diligent work, brothers and sisters, that enables us to work diligently to the glory of God. That's what you and I must do.